Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers, and for anyone who has a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show, we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first, to make you write more. Plank the second, to make you write better. And plank the third, to make you happier as you do both those things. To that end... I take listeners' first pages and give advice on how I think they could improve them and make them even better. And I uh, also have authors on the show who come on, published authors and uh, people who work in the industry like editors and agents and even now psychologists and neuroscientists coming on the show to talk about ways in which, you know, their experiences of writing stories and how we can write better and theories of motivation and all those sort of things. I really try to throw the uh, kitchen sink in uh, recently. We've had a, uh, an expert in magic on the show, uh, Dr. Alexander Cummins, talking about how you might use magic rituals to improve your writing. I, I, I think it's a it's an episode that's gone down really well with listeners. I'm really glad. So um, certainly... I'm I'm not uh, interested in purely following conventional routes, uh, and uh, it's been a jolly, jolly lot of fun doing so. Today, I am uh, thrilled to announce that um, I have a chat with an extremely popular author and creative writing uh Guru sounds like I'm being sort of pejorative. Like I, like I go, who does this guy think he is? I'm being like genuinely someone who's written loads of very entertaining and informative articles on the art of making a story appear, uh, and is you know has gathered legions of uh, admirers and has you know done. A lot of work to support the writing community, and that uh, fellow is uh, Chuck Wendig. Really, really thrilled that he uh, wanted to be on the show. He's got a new novel coming out uh, in the next couple of weeks at the time of recording uh, called Wanderers, which um, we go into, but I've read, and is this story of people starting to spontaneously sleepwalk in the in, in the US and slowly... It becoming clear that this is a kind of movement and they're all heading somewhere and that this event might have big consequences for humanity and we see that through a few chosen humans perspectives and it's kind of dotted with lots of and as anyone who's read any of my work knows i love found text and uh there's lots of you know bits clip bits of articles and stuff off the internet that starts each uh, uh, starts each chapter so you can see how the world and kind of pop culture is reacting to this as it turns from being just one character following her sister to clearly a world event and um it's very inventive and entertaining and moves at a furious clip so i'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to go and uh, grab yourself a copy or i suspect at this point if you're in the uk to, to pre-order yourself a, a copy oh no 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 actually no you can go and get them he, he says himself at the end of this episode you can actually there's that waterstones have got signed copies um so you can go and 
I think you can just go and grab copies. That's uh, beg your pardon. Yeah, so that's exciting. Uh, I just it's just really really nice to be able to chat to him. He's got lots of creative writing advice, but he also manages to do that while being pretty modest. We talk a little bit about how he got into writing. Um, it, it's just really interesting, and well, sort of, he's only he's, you know very at pains to say this is just what's worked for him. These are just some things that he's learned that have been useful for him along the way. I don't think you can get to the end of this episode without being better informed, without having some new ideas, with at the very least getting what I think Chuck is excellent at, which is giving provocations, just like kind of throwing these kind of tear gas grenades into the middle of a pack of creative writers and go deal with this and then you and then you do you know i think it's really exciting you know he just is quite good at just uh being a little a bit of an a, a kind of mischievous but ultimately benign agent provocateur uh in the creative writing community and i think i think that's kind of wonderful he's if you haven't encountered his work he's he's written uh all sorts he's written uh, for uh like tabletop rpgs he's written for video games he's written his own original fiction he's written um licensed stuff like uh star wars novelizations really you know anyway i won't keep going except to say if you like this show and you want to support it then aside from uh checking out the work of authors that we feature on the show you could also check out um one of my novels if you haven't already uh the the honors series is the honors and the new one the ice house uh they're both kind of like gnarly literary fantasy uh but you know with martial arts and knife fights and girls with shotguns and monsters and stuff so uh, you know it's it's art but it's kick-ass um i i'll put links in the show notes if you'd like to uh, check those out but that's basically how i make my living i don't have another job so if people don't buy it my two-year-old don't eat so um she will eat but um it will be bad stuff so uh yeah if you would like to grab my books i would sure appreciate it and if you just want to uh drop uh a few uh beans into the old uh into the old tin for the uh podcast to help me play pay my hosting fees and things like that and my website hosting fee um then there's a link to my i've got a coffee page just ko-fi.com forward slash tim clare people you know make get to drop me a, a, a you know tips and bits and pieces uh, over on there and i really appreciate all of you who have made the effort to do that because um without it i can't continue doing the show so i really appreciate it okay i'm not going to waffle any longer here is my uh, chat with author and a pretty great dude chuck wendig please enjoy so the first question i want to ask you is what's the first story you can remember telling Oh God, the first story I remember telling. Um, it's tricky. I don't know that what story I told first, but I do remember one of the first stories uh, that I wrote. Actually, two stories. One, um, you know, in elementary school, they did that thing where it was like, oh, we're gonna, we're all gonna be authors, and we're gonna bind our books together in these actual little bound books. We're gonna have it done at a place, and it's gonna come back to you. And this is your first published book. Uh, and that one was about uh, people going into the core of the earth. 
Uh, it was nice. almost like that movie, The Core, but except I beat them to it. And when, and when that movie came out, The Core, I was like, I already did that in fourth grade or whatever. Huh. Uh, and then I also remember doing a mashup sort of hand-drawn comic book of... Uh, also, I feel like I was uh, presaging what was to come. Aliens, as in Aliens the Xenomorph uh, versus Pac-Man. And uh, I don't think at this point there had been a lot of Aliens versus, if any. Uh, I was pretty young at that point. I mean, I'm 43 now, so. Uh, and I don't know why it, I was thinking Pac-Man and Aliens had any beef, had any battle between them. Uh, but they did. I, maybe it's just that they're both kind of mouths. Like, in a way, they're both snapping terrible mouths. Ah. Uh, and so I did that, and I, I again, it, it really you suggests... You were so ahead of your time. I was like, so ahead of my Detective time, I really... Pikachu, right? Like, I know, I, right, if only I had written that also. Uh, yeah, it was it was a strange comic book, I don't know what I was thinking. It also suggests I, I saw the Alien movies probably way too early. Uh, I mean, it worked, I liked them, and I still love them to this day, but I, I, I was maybe 10 years old or something when I did that. But Pac-Man as the protagonist, I mean, that does like dial down the stakes for me. Like, I know yes. Pac-Man can take some punishment, right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't and, know why and, he's not. He's battling aliens now and not ghosts. I couldn't tell you why. Was, and what can you remember the tone of, of those? Were they like, were you doing them as kind of like, like parodies or? No, no, no but also not serious. Like they were fun and funny, but not, um, I wasn't ripping on anything. There was no, nothing satirical or uh parodic about them that's so awesome i love that like so many did you have any when you were sort of growing up did you have any mentors or a lot of writers i talk to there'll be like some figure in their life who either says like a permission figure or a mentor someone who says hey you can write or says you should write more or, i want to see another one of your stories was there anyone in your life as you were growing up who encouraged your writing well, you know, I have a um, a sister, Tracy, who uh, was, I, I don't know that she so much encouraged writing right out of the gate, but she encouraged reading. And she encouraged reading in a way where she's the one who really first put things like Stephen King and Robert McCam and these sort of old horror novels in my hands. Like, I didn't know that these things existed. And she was like, you have to read these. And I was, again, probably too theoretically young to read those. But How old were you? About when I was you maybe reading- tw- t- 12 maybe something like that i reckon that, um, that's about the time i think i start i think i read the shining when i was 13 and it yeah, was like scary yeah. right but it's supposed to be scary yeah and i actually don't i technically don't i mean i don't really think it's too young but i mean on the label it's, it's yeah. too young, you know um so she definitely sort of got me into reading that stuff and i know uh very early on i wasn't sure i wanted to be a writer i thought i was going to be a cartoonist of all the things and uh, they, you know, my sister and um, my mother to some degree, but definitely my sister encouraged me to uh, to do that. And they were always interested in, and she had shirts made up with some of my cartoon characters on them. And really? Stuff. So it was, uh, oh. Yeah. So I felt like, you know, because I, I kind of grew up in a, like a hard scrabble blue collar family where your sort of creativity and uh, the idea of doing those types of things as work didn't really make sense to most of my family. I, I remember, I, that's really interesting. You're the first person who sort of mentioned cartooning because that was, that was my original um, thing that I wanted to do. And I went to, I went to, uh, I did work experience at animation studios. I was really? like, really, yeah, I was really like into it. And it was what everyone around me thought I was going to do. Yeah. But I'll tell you what happened. I went to like do work experience at animation studio and I was like, 
oh god this is a lot of work <laughs> that's what i that's exactly what i was like oh, i don't know that i'm ready for this kind of work like and obviously being a writer is its own kind of a lot of work but uh it was just work that i didn't find to be work uh whereas drawing and art i was like oh i don't know if i want to learn all this stuff so can you talk to me a little bit about when you started to if you started to but like conceive of writing as like a path that you were going down i don't mean to sort of self-mythologize i know for some authors they never get the call they just kind of fall into it and for some writers from the very beginning they know like they know they're oh gonna yeah be no i knew yeah it was it was about eighth grade uh, i had an english uh, teacher who uh i was somewhat combative with uh we disagreed on a lot of things and she would sometimes suggest the words i was using in stories were not real words and then i would have to bring out a book or a dictionary and sort of like, look what you have done. This is a true word. How dare you? And, uh, you know, so I was already sort of in the sense of like, I felt like I was competing with her by just by writing in general. Uh, and then also there was that idea that like, you know, I was reading all this genre work that, um, was not viewed as real in terms of it being literary or something you could read as a project or for a paper or over the summer, whatever it was, they were viewed as sort of, illegitimate and yet and somewhere in there that's when it clicked for me that um whatever you feel about the literary merits of genre fiction these people were producing books and getting paid for it because obviously and i don't think until that moment i had really realized that writers were paid entities like they did not i just you know you don't i mean maybe you don't really think about it and also eighth grade is when they start asking you like what do you want to be when you grow up and not just in the like astronaut fireman way but in the like it's time to have a conversation with a guidance counselor kind of way and so that's when it like it clicked for me i was like i want to do this for a living these objects these books contain stories and i want to tell those and ideally get paid to do it it sounds from what you've described you sound it sounds like you were had two kind of like quite contrasting almost like conflicting influences on you one surrounded you know by people for whom you know not unreasonably writing doesn't look like a real career path or looks like maybe too sort of self-regarding introspective artsy fartsy and then on the other side you've got people for whom the writing that you're interested in the stories you're interested in aren't artistic enough they're you know they're they're like a product they're junk lit or whatever you know pejorative terms people have for it do do you think do you think that's something you felt, those two? Because it seems like they're pulling you in two contradictory directions. On one side, you're being too artistic. And on the other side, you're being not artistic enough. It feels like genre fiction puts you in a sort of, in a little bit of a double bind. It does. And um, at the same time, it sort of created an opportunity to both demonstrate um, over time. And I think this is something that gets ingrained in you as an author, maybe something that I demonstrate or try to demonstrate over the course of my career that both you can commit, uh, hard work in a sort of a blue collar, you know, stick to the a- act in, of writing. And then also in the art of writing, you can bring in terms of genre fiction, you can bring a sort of a little bit of that artistic literary merit. Those lines are way blurrier than everybody wants them to be. And so there's no reason uh, that genre fiction can't be both high and low minded at the same time and do um, things at multiple levels uh, that are that are artistic and uh, uh, craft driven at the same time. 
Can you? You've mentioned Stephen King, but I wondered if we could just touch on a few of your uh, literary heroes or books oh, yeah. that you really, really dug. That you were like, "Oh, this is the juice. This is what yeah. I want." Uh, early on, Douglas Adams, obviously Hitchhiker's Guide, um, and then that led, of course, into Terry Pratchett. The Douglas Adams was sort of first in my brain for that. It's crazy, um, isn't it? I I remember getting those books and like powering through everything Douglas Adams had written in a week which i mean yeah. what a week but like my well, and that's gosh. the thing Some, sometimes you read books where you don't you didn't know you could do that <laughs> like you didn't know it was okay to have that kind of a story i mean as a writer now it's different in terms of it's okay how you you know enact that story upon the world but when you read them for the first time it's just something totally different i mean i remember reading that when i read snow crash uh, Stevenson, I was like, what am I reading? This is not like anything I have read. Even in terms of cyberpunk, it wasn't like anything I had read. Uh, just the attitude and the visceral component and the present tense nature of it. And it was just, um, so, you know, Snow Crash is good, but though that's a little later for me. Um, Douglas Adams, as I mentioned, uh, Stephen King, Robert McCammon, um, a little later on, Robin Hobb uh, for fantasy, but also such exquisite character work and also such exquisite making characters suffer work mm. it's a good way of like i'm gonna stab instead of stabbing a character i'm gonna stab the reader through the character it's just such a cruel wonderful way to write um uh christopher moore again to kind of go for someone who's a little funnier um yeah so i think that's a good joe what, lansdale what? my god joe lansdale is a phenomenal storyteller Could, really uh, one of the best storytellers i think uh, i'm, I'm, I'm re literature. really sorry but i don't think i'm familiar with joe lansdale off the top of my head can you oh see? texas he's a texan author and here's a here's the lesson one of the great lessons i took from joe lansdale and it's less purely about writing and storytelling though he is a true master at writing and storytelling and he is a king of the metaphor just the sort of folksy hilarious spot-on metaphor but he um i remember reading so this author robert mccammon who was sort of maybe third in the horror rankings against like king and Kuntz at the time um and mccammon was a best-selling horror author and he would write these huge horror uh, novels and when it came time for him to do something different like he wanted to not write a pure horror novel anymore um he had found such success in horror that his publishers didn't really want to produce anything that wasn't that. Whereas Joe Lansdale, also sort of coming up at the same time as McCammon, didn't have the measure of immediate success, wasn't right out of the gate a best-selling author, but he, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of painted with shotguns. He did across every huh. genre you could imagine. He was writing crime fiction and detective fiction and cow weird West cowboy stuff and not weird West cowboy stuff, just gritty sort of cowboy stuff and weird hallucinogenic sci-fi grindhouse horror he was just all over the map and so right out of the gate he sort of diversified his narrative portfolio a little bit and it meant that when success found him um a little later on that he was not so married and and for lack of a better term branded right because i mean that's one of the things that authors are always told you need to brand yourself and um, for my mileage, branding is a thing we do to cows to make sure that they don't get away from their master. And I do feel like if you get branded a little early on or too firmly in one genre, it gets harder for you to tell stories in different spaces. So Joe Lansdale was a really good lesson for me to sort of like right out of the gate, kind of write whatever you want. And I, I feel like writers of my age and our sort of generation are uh, raised on 
so many different genres and so many different influences that we like to just mash it all up. We don't necessarily have to stick with one thing. So that was a value to me. That sounds yeah. Oh my gosh, I have to. I have to say, I that immediately makes me want to check him out. Like you've just done. It's so thrilling hearing somebody like rave about a writer that they love because I'm I'm, I'm immediately sold. I love that idea of being slightly polymorphic especially like now there is sometimes some anxiety that you have to like find a hook a niche and um and 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 occupy it because otherwise you know the amazon algorithm won't connect your book (laughs) correctly to other books and stuff i see a lot of um advice to writers saying like you don't don't stray out of your niche stick to your knitting because otherwise you're going to kill your amazon uh recommended algorithm and nobody's going to be able to find you and and it's it's lovely to hear you say that yeah because the real danger right is if you i mean it's that eggs and basket business if you invest so deeply in a single genre um i'm a steampunk author and then suddenly steampunk falls out of favor you have also fallen out of favor whereas if you are a little more diffuse and you know in in filmmaking right no one cares that a director or a screenwriter writes across multiple genres no one is weird about that um certainly there are maybe screenwriters who work very exclusively in horror or in whatever but uh you're not punished or it doesn't seem weird for anybody to branch out and i think authors are best when they are uh willing to and able to um be diffuse in that career so can you talk a little bit about your sort of jump into i want to talk about your new novel in just a sec but just to give listeners who um haven't read your work yet a sense of the scope of how much you've covered already um you know still fairly early in in your career in 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 total terms can you just talk a bit about like how when you made the sort of move into uh fiction and um what your sort of breakthrough was yeah i uh you know, I've always wanted to write novels and uh, it wasn't really working out for me as it often does very early on because you don't really know what you're doing and you have to fail a whole lot to succeed. Uh, so what I did was, um, because I was gaming a lot uh, and pen and paper gaming, like D&D type stuff. Uh, oh, yes. I, um, I That's right. So, I mean, you know, I figured like, well, if I'm going to make money at writing, maybe I could write those for a while. And so I did actually. I, I applied... Um, for uh, freelance work uh, for a company called White Wolf Game Studios who produced Vampire and the Masquerade and a few other um, of those sort of big horror games. And I ended up kind of providing providing, um, content for them, which sounds so like crass. I provided content. I wrote games for them for like 10, 12 years. Can I just ask before you go on, like what a uh, a Vampire the Masquerade-like scenario, what what, what that looks like? Because we've actually you are you're not the first author to talk about vampire masquerade on this show we're all over yeah and and it's like it feels like this almost but i've never played it but it feels like a kind of freemasonry of role-playing games right that every now and then people will like mention yeah this kind of it feels like it's something that's very People who are into it were really into it. Yeah, well, it's that like goth '90s sort of like you know, dark trench coats katana's business, which eventually, thankfully, evolved into more mature storytelling. But that's sort of you know, it's that like Nine Inch Nails kind of thing, more um, and Rice, whatever you know, wherever it comes from. 
yeah, so writing that was fun. I, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of things in terms of either designing adventures or characters or uh, um, writing uh, rules, a lot of rules. I did a lot of rule stuff. And then over time, I became also a developer for them, and I developed a monster hunting game called uh, Hunter the Vigil, and uh, I worked for their, their fairy game called Changeling. And so I was sort of all over the map for them, and, but it was always sort of a, a screwed back to the horror genre is all their games. And could you talk a little bit about how, because um, you're essentially in those things, you you write like non-player characters and things like that, but you're essentially yeah. a write. Is it weird to be writing stories? I'm just wondering how it prepared you, for, if it did at all, for writing novels, because you're essentially having to write a novel without yeah. a protagonist. Yeah, the weird thing, here's the good and the bad of that, the writing a game or writing game rules and game adventures and all that stuff is very much about taking your ego out of it. Uh, not only are you writing someone else's IP, but you're designing an experience for people who you aren't aware of, you know, people who are going to sit down at a table, you know, 50 to 500 miles from wherever you're sitting right now. And they're going to take the information that you've written and they are going to use it to toolbox together a story or an experience. Maybe they will be uh, somewhat religiously married to what you wrote and they will follow it very linearly, or but maybe they'll just break it apart, and this is usually more the case, and they'll sort of harvest and farm the pieces to their own design. And so it's very much about taking your ego out and giving storytelling components so other people can build their own stories out of it, their own narrative experiences. Whereas writing a novel is obviously all ego as much as you hate to be that way that's really i mean you're literally saying this evocation of will upon the world you're like i think that if i write a hundred thousand words people will want to read this giant brick of of story and so um it's hard to switch gears from them but i'll tell you the one thing that is good that comes over from gaming is that uh gaming specifically not even the writing of gaming, but actually sitting down at a game table uh, really teaches you how to let stories be character-driven, not plot-driven, or at least to let the characters create plot as they go. Um, as I'm sort of wont to say, I like characters uh, to be architects and not architecture. Like, they're, they're not just, you know, arranging furniture. They're building the house and designing it as they go. So... Um, because when you sit down at a table full of people and you're like, I have this story and the castle is under siege by a dragon and the players look at you, they're like, well, we're going to stay in the tavern instead of going to fight the stupid <laughs> dragon. And we're going to try to run like a gambling, you know, con artist scheme on the, the drunk orc in the corner. And you're like, no, don't do that. I didn't design for this. And the moment you realize that they that's their fun, that the story is more interesting when the characters sort of take their own way. Um, when you can kind of retake that model and duplicate it in a narrative sense, and you're like, I've created these characters for this world, and they have needs and desires and problems to conquer, and you push them out into that world, uh, they they write the story for you. I don't mean magically, mystically, but you've sort of set them on a path and pre-programmed them to make the story for you, as opposed to, well, I'm going to create this world cataclysm, and now I have to sort of jackhammer and, and, you know, square peg, circle hole, a bunch of characters into a scenario. Uh, it's something that they create the scenario as they go, and that's pretty cool. So are you saying, um, am I right in, am I under, am I, are we to understand that what you're saying is that you now, when you write, have got the kind of 
algorithmic representation of a bun- <laughs> of a bunch of like players around the table and that is you the just goal. and you po- and you populate the characters with those people and yeah. then you just lay a scenario out in front of them and see how they respond to it yeah to some degree because that's you know they are going to make decisions based on whatever problems they're facing and uh, when they make decisions, they do things in accordance to that. And the more, you know, as it sort of the stakes raise and the, 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 the drama builds between characters and, you know, you have characters sort of running into each other, either in a sort of a parallel way where they're working together or a perpendicular way where they're opposing each other, whereas one uh, wants to solve a problem and the other one represents the problem. And so um, it creates drama and conflict and you don't necessarily have to uh, orchestrate that. That's not to say I don't outline. I do, but I just outline with um, the characters uh, going forward. I don't. I don't try to create these big event-driven things in the sense that um, I, I, you know, I want this like exoskeleton where I'm going to try to like hammer uh, the the meat inside the skeleton instead of like just packing it gently upon the bones. So can. You- I think it might be like a, a good point to just sort of jump straight into talking about your new novel, uh, Wanderers, because oh, I yeah. really love to hear how that, what you've just talked about, um, fits into your how you began to create this world. Because for want of a better word, I... I, I I feel like I would, you know, if someone if I was starting to give a concept of what this novel type of novel it is, it feels like a kind of event novel. Is that it does, fair? and it is, it is, it's absolutely fair. It's a it's sort of an epic horror by way of Stephen King and Michael Crichton and uh, Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven. It's very much, uh, you know, Station Eleven meets The Stand, kind of in a, in a sort of a large. Uh, some people have called it uh, dystopian or post-apocalyptic, but really it's pre, pre-apocalyptic and, and apocalyptic. Uh, it's not so much about the after, but the during. Um, so it's definitely event-driven, but uh, and I am I am very hesitant to spoil anything about the yeah, book because I, it has I'm a lot of twists and turns. Yeah. But it's definitely um, a book where, despite the fact that there is a lot of, as you say, event happening, um, it's also very character-driven. Even the event itself. Uh, is not without uh, having having some uh, character effect upon it. Let's just say. So, can you give? Uh, so the kind of the nature of it, though. I don't want to, you know. Uh, actually, do you want to give just so we can sort of? Oh yeah, I can give like, the, uh, the, the do logline, you want to give like sure. a small pricey? I should, yeah. So yeah. we can talk. So, so we can still be sort of like dancing around a few spoilers, but people yeah, aren't just going. The oh, what? Yeah. yeah, I know who who is this person? What is he talking about? Uh, yeah, in, in Wanderers. Uh, A young woman wakes up to find that her little sister uh, has gotten out of bed and has begun sleepwalking down the driveway. Uh, And she follows her sister, and the sister will not waken. Uh, She cannot be stirred from this sleepwalking. And uh, a mile or two down the road, uh, another sleepwalker joins her. And this continues on uh, mile after mile. um, One or two sleepwalkers join uh, until it starts to look less like an isolated incident and more like... Uh, some sort of disease or some sort of attack or some sort of terrorist experience. We, uh, so we don't really know what that is. But the mystery is that there is a essentially a sleepwalking uh, epidemic 
uh, across uh, the United States. And what happens is um, the, the family and friends, loved ones of these sleepwalkers, follow them uh, as quote-unquote shepherds, and the sleepwalkers are the flock. And it uh, literally, in a big way, divides America, and it causes a great deal of political and social and emotional upheaval. Uh, and, you know, where they're going and why they are gathering and how it's even happening is a, um, a great deal of mystery in the book and is not something that is solved uh, quickly. But uh, obviously the book gets around to it. But there's a lot of twists and turns as to where they're going and what they're doing and if it's if they are a force for good or a force for evil or something in between. So. So one thing that strikes me like immediately when I was reading this is I feel you have so many options about where to start, who to yes. start with. When you have like an event novel, I want to talk to a lot of writers, you know, they can come up with, you know, the big scenario, but finding a way to cut th- cut into it, an yep. entry point is really, really tough. How out of everyone in the, in the United States or in indeed the world that you could talk about, did you... Did you choose to start where and when you did? Well, that's one of those tough questions because they, everybody always wants to know from you as an author, like two kind of things. Where do you get your ideas? Uh, and how long did it take you to write this book? That's what everyone always wants to know. How long did it take you to write this? And uh, neither of those things are super easy to answer. Um, you know, the idea question, I always say the better question to ask an author is uh, not where do they get their ideas, but how do you make them stop? Because I feel like we are exposed antenna, just receiving nonsense ideas, you know, nine minutes out of every 10, just ideas are constantly pinging us and they're mostly garbage. Yeah, I just spoke to a, a neuroscientist for the show um, two days ago and he pointed out that this thing you just described, divergent thinking, coming up with ideas that aren't normal, is really easy. And also it's a, it's a you know, basic symptom of quite a lot of psychotic illnesses. <laughs> and yeah, sorry, everybody. W- yeah. What you also need is convergent thinking, to look through all of those ideas and go, are any of these actually good or useful yeah. or have legs? And being able to filter is just as important as being able to be a receptor. Otherwise, you, otherwise you're just flooded with ideas you can't choose between. Yeah, there's no context and it's just a, a noise, just pure noise. So um, it used to be that I considered ideas valuable, um, precious gemstones to be hoarded. Uh, over time, though, I've realized that there are more trinkets and dross. So I uh, kind of submit them to what I call Idea Thunderdome, which um, everyone ha. always needs to tell you to, to write ideas down. And I don't write them down at all. Uh, I let them go. I try to willfully shut them away from my mind. Like, get out of here, you, you damn idea. And uh, if it persists, if it fights all of the other ideas inside my brain and emerges every day wanting to be um, heralded with and, and reckoned with, then I, I, I do try to look at it and I think what it is. And so that's where that question of how long a book takes you gets really squirrely because Wanders is an idea, that core conceit, right, of people sleepwalking across the country uh, has been with me for maybe like four, four or five years now. And uh, I had nothing to do with it. I had no context for it. And I would 
play it out multiple times in my mind. I'd take a shower, go for a walk, or mow the lawn, and I would unspool the scenario. Who are they? What are they doing? And I would play out options, and none of them really felt right. And then uh, the magic magic year of 2016, 2017 happened, where uh, I don't know if anybody has noticed, but it's a little bit strange out there right now. Um, and so it was a, 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 I had this like massive swell of anxiety over not just the political situation, but I mean, pick, pick your poison, right? It's like artificial intelligence or post-antibiotic age or uh, obviously politics or, uh, you know, nuclear problems or whatever. It's I mean, like a really horrible control. Kentucky yeah. Derby, right? But where is, all the horses is. are death. Yes, exactly. <laughs> all the horses are death and they're all running swiftly for your body so um that i had this like swell of anxiety but in a weird sort of way these anxieties formed what i like to consider like an anxiety voltron and uh, (laughs) they sort of formed together and then suddenly i had wanderers uh i had i had a way to contextualize literally all of the fears i had um, and all of these things I was wrestling with uh, in an anxiety sort of way. Uh, and I had characters to um, experience that, to deal with it, to engage with those ideas and to challenge those anxieties and so forth. So uh, it took, you know, the peculiar anxiety Voltron and, and, and miasma and stew of all of what was going on to contextualize a story for Wanderers that, and make that idea into something uh, bigger, something that was more than just mechanism and more that was more than just event. Isn't that fascinating? Because so it that really just chimes with a few things that authors have said about again and again. I hear stories that writers end up. You know, it's like why would you ever go through the incredible ball ache of writing an entire novel? It's a lot of work, and yeah. often it's like writers with like this huge hairball of like a, a problem that's essentially insoluble. Like I'm worried about, you know, I, I'm worried about what happens if one of my loved ones dies. I, I'm worried about the state of the world. I'm worried about politics I can't control. And it's funny how those tend to be the end, end up forming the ideas that you hear like a thump at your door at 2 a.m. and you go down and the rain's falling and there's this silhouetted <laughs> faceless figure and it's like the ideas come back for you and it says, write me. Um, I, I, yeah, I, that's it. So, but with, so what did, did writing um, uh, Shana uh, as a, as a protagonist, as a viewpoint character, how did that help to cut through this gigantic, gigantic idea that you've got because like the one you know that an epic sort of idea for a novel has two sides on the other hand it's like a cool thing to be able to explain to someone you go this happens and it's obviously very big in the way that if you're a novelist writing about something very small and sort of like a gentle quiet part of life it's harder to but on the same time like it's like trying to eat an elephant so i wondered if you could just talk about how you how this character allowed you to explore that yeah, that, that's the interesting thing. The eat the elephant metaphor is one I, I use actually when describing her because she has, because she's young and she's uh, with her sister and the, the flock with the other shepherds, she allows us to be uh, that sort of ground level um, viewpoint. Like she doesn't have to, she's Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. I don't mean literally as a character, but in terms of a viewpoint, like Luke doesn't have a huge sense of galactic struggle. He just, I mean, he understands that there's a war going on, but he's in the ass end of the galaxy, 
you know, fishing sand out of his crack. He's not really aware of the overall struggle. He just wants to get out. He's a bored kid. Um, and so I always think there's such huge value in um, lensing a big event plot, um, almost like you do in uh, M. Night Shyamalan's Signs, right? It's this galactic invasion, but it's just about one small family on a farm. Um, and so having that, having her be a small character who uh, doesn't see the forest for the trees, she only sees the trees, is a useful way forward through that. But then we also have another viewpoint character, which is Benji Ray, who's um, ex Epidemic Intelligence Services for the CDC. So he gets a he gets the thirty thousand foot view. So you get the you know you get she's sort of a little more ground level emotional horror component. And he's got a little bit of a sort of a uh, the Michael Crichton horror component. And as much as we, you know, don't like to admit it, Michael Crichton basically wrote horror novels, right? I mean, diseases and dinosaurs taking over. Um, so, you know, I think it's cool to give, that's one of the great fun things about writing a multi point of view novel like this is you have so many ways into the experience and so many ways to show, you know, a global event like this is going to have such epic ramifications for everybody. And so why limit yourself to one point of view through that? And you can give yourself so many uh, views at it, so many looks at it and angles on it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think like it's it's weird because like as a as a writer, the thing the thing that I always enjoy writing or want to write is actually like the sort of situation room guy being you know analyzing stuff and coming out with data and being worried and furrowed brow and saying we've got to sort this out and yet actually for the reader i think it's really important we have someone down on the ground it's just weird to me that we can see like to use your star wars metaphor i don't mean to sound heartless but like princess leia gets her planet blown up and i'm just like <laughs> even she's not yeah. that bothered about it really no not really yeah but then we see a we, we, you know, when later on we see an Ewok like dying and one holding it, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, shit, no! I'm like, yeah, I'm absolutely gutted, and yeah. and it and it's it's weird. Maybe it's not weird, but like as human beings, we need a character who who bleeds, who has a backstory, um, to make the the global seem. Like it has stakes at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, I do feel like that first film kind of whiffs the death of her planet. She doesn't seem super broken up over it. Let's be kind of honest on that one. Yeah, I mean, and it would be if she went into it in too much. If she was too, it would like, it would make the film very difficult to get through if she was just like completely bummed out for the rest of the movie. Couldn't move. <laughs> of course. And it was like, of course. I can't, yeah. I can't even think about about you know that's you know one of the things you know when when we see star the, the star killer base like destroy some planets but we actually get to glimpse some of the people on the planets reacting it that's makes huge, that yeah. moment much more i'm like oh my oh yeah, oh i'm they, they really bummed out now come to them yeah yeah so can, can can you i wonder if you you said it was sort of partly coming out of the global situation and like the anxiety of, of the age I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, if it doesn't depress you too much, but about <laughs> no, like writing not. as a reaction to either personal stress or political situations or global things. Um, do you find that helps you with those ideas? It Is it something... Does, yeah. yeah. It helps me. It's. Um, I don't know that it would help everybody. So, I mean, I, I am always hesitant to tell everybody you know anybody what 
what to do for their own work and for their own, especially for their own mental health. Um, I can see, you know, writing in a completely alternate direction, opposite direction of uh, this kind of stuff would be also very helpful and refreshing. Uh, but as someone who kind of writes, um, even though very few of my books are labeled horror, I feel like I more or less write horror novels. Uh, I, yeah, it definitely helps me grapple with it and contextualize it and find power against it. And, uh, you know, I know there are uh, certain um, groups of what I would consider subterranean dweller people who, uh, hill cannibals who really think that, quote unquote, books shouldn't have, stories shouldn't have politics in them, which is such an absurd, in and of itself is a political opinion to say stories shouldn't have politics. And what it usually translates to is I think you should write stories that have my politics in them so they're invisible to me. Um, but, you know, I think there's a value to putting all of this stuff on paper and figuring it out for yourself because it's hard. I mean, uh, it's tricky to be, you know, to contextualize this stuff, to figure out what it even means for you personally and what it means for other people and to get into the shoes of other characters and see how they might experience um, these particular anxieties. And um, it, it, it's almost like it makes it real so you can fight it. It's a form of resistance. Um, I think putting it in stories and in, in some ways being optimistic about what's in those stories is also itself a form of resistance. So can you just, that's a really interesting point you made there. And I just want to sort of ask you if you could unpick it slightly. Does that mean when you're putting yourself in the shoes of various different characters, when you're doing these acts of empathy, when you're being other people, um, you feel that you actually learn something or come to a greater understanding. And I was wondering if, there's any of your novels or even in Wanderers, like, can you, I don't want, I don't want to sort of like force you into a situation where I'm asking you to say, tell me about a time you learned something from your own work. <laughs> Aren't you clever sure. to have taught yourself yeah. something? I'm, I don't, I understand entirely what you mean. Um, I, I've had it myself, um, but I just wondered, you know, what's some, can you, can you give an example of something you've learned through writing about a subject or writing a, a novel? Um, there's a couple different questions there. I mean, in terms of learning things, um, in, in a sort of a research way, researching books, I learn all kinds of things. I'm just about disease or hacking, like from zeros or, I, you know, invasive is a book about genetically modified killer ants. So I learned a lot about ants. Um, but in terms of the, the sort of empathic version of that, the, what you might consider a more human and emotional research, um, sometimes, you know, getting into different viewpoints, um, whether those people are treated as protagonists or supporting characters or as antagonists, it just helps you humanize the problems and anxieties that we're going to face and that we're all facing. It doesn't necessarily mean you're excusing them. Empathy is not sympathy. Um, I don't necessarily think it means taking bad people and being like, oh, don't you feel bad for them now? But it does help to um, unpack their viewpoints and to see what that means um, and how they got there. Um, you know, and, and that's true both in fiction and I think also in reality. Um, you know, just sort of understanding how people arrive at certain things is helpful too, because you don't really know how to fight it um, if you don't know where it comes from. Um, you don't know how to talk about it, really, if you don't know where it comes from. Otherwise, it's all just surface. It's just kind of uh, barbing back and forth and making sort of one-upsmanship points. Um, and fiction really shouldn't be that. And fiction also really, I don't feel works well when it's preachy. As much as I, um, a book like Wanderers is very explicitly political, I don't 
um, try to draw so many lines that it feels like I'm um, shouting at you through a bullhorn. Like I, I, there's characters from multiple walks of life and multiple, um, y- you know, angles of attack, so to speak, uh, whether politically, emotionally, intellectually. And so um, I feel like that's useful to do both as an author and, uh, you know, just as a good, good old fashioned reader and person in the world. Can I ask you about humour? Because I really, really love in Wanderers and just in books in general, um, the bits like a found text that you start oh, uh, sure, chapters yeah. with. But, you know, <clears throat> I guess if people are, you know, hearing you talk about you're writing about, you know, a big apocalyptic event and it's kind of like could be considered from some angles as horror. And yet you start chapters with, uh, you know, like a neural network invents new desserts that include like cakey cake <laughs> and unicorn poo cake. I just wondered yeah. if you could reflect on, I know it's like, it's a thing in itself, right? It is just funny, but like what, what, why have you included that? And what do you feel the function is of having like moments of like, just kind of goofy joke and some puns that made me, you know, I've got to say <laughs> like briefly, very resentful of you. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah, like, exactly. "What are you doing to me? Yeah, how dare um, I?" Yeah, no, I I think that stuff is there's so many functions of it. First of all, um, uh, humor on a simple level is necessary for horror. I really think humor is a vital counterbalance to horror, both to help you endure it and also to sharpen the the knife. Um, it's that whole, you know, I mean, it's twee to say, but you really don't have light without dark and dark without light, right? I mean, those things are sort of important uh, dual sides. And humor and horror come from a very similar place. Um, both are at their best sort of absurd and shock-based and surprising. Um, humor works more because you're not really expecting it, right? It's the a, a thing that's funny is a thing that kind of tweaks us in some way. And it's like, I didn't see it taking that weird left turn. That's so funny. Um, and horror goes just goes the other way with it. It's like, oh, I didn't realize how horrible that could be if we just drove top speed at a wall. And um, so I think there's uh, there's value in that just on a simple sort of a genre level. Um, but also like the stuff, like the world is really kind of occasionally very absurd. Um, and though I don't think fiction needs to mirror reality or model reality, authenticity is a very different thing from you know, uh, honest to God reality. But I do think there's value, especially when you're telling a sort of a, an apocalypse story in the year 2018, 2019, that it should occasionally be a little bit absurd um, just because it is so weird out there. Like, I mean, you look at who the American president is and you're like that. That's really dumb. Why does that, that shouldn't work. That should no one would write that down. That's absurd. But so we've really changed um, what's acceptable, I think, in terms of fiction, because things are really like satire and parody are, are almost dead at this point. It's very difficult to do them well uh, because reality satirizes itself on the daily. And so to not have a little bit of that in a book like this is it would also be sort of weird. And, and the, to speak specifically to the the artificial intelligence neural networks, you know, f- makes funny desserts. That's totally a real thing. If you if anybody out there is not following uh, Janelle Shane. Uh, right now she um and, and people she retweets and stuff too she literally does uh program neural networks to try to come up with weird recipes or songs or D D titles just it's funny stuff but it like they're trying to literally teach neural networks to 
to process information and intelligently regurgitate it in new combinations. And so I think that's sort of a funny thing. And then given that how that reflects into the novel of Wanderers becomes its own very special sinister thing. Can you, that's really, that's a really, really fascinating and insightful uh, answer, Chuck. I really appreciate that because it, it's, I can feel my brain being slightly twisted as I listen as well, because it is making <laughs> yeah. me think about things that, um, you know, have this slightly queasy feeling of a black hole event horizon. Um, can you talk a little bit about, because you talked about genre, and I just, I wondered if you could reflect slightly on um, where genre fiction stands, especially things like science fiction, fantasy, horror. You know, I definitely grew up as a writer on horror and then kind of got into science fiction and fantasy as well, but I would be... When the world is extremely weird, yeah, where yeah. do you see sort of uh, horror and science fiction and fantasy I- existing? Because for a long time, they uh, I, and I don't want to sort of erase the contributions that various luminaries have made, but you know there was realistic fiction, and then there was this kind of sort of weird like barn over in the corner where all the genre writers were kind of locked up. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and when we have an age where it is it feels very when we see stuff announced on the internet and you just go uh, i guess that's the world we're living in now <laughs> like, yeah, that would yeah. have seen impossible i wonder if you could reflect what it feels like to be a writer of um non like photorealistic social yeah. fiction well it's weird i'll tell you that i mean i'm sure it's weird writing literally anything right now but it's weird that because you're as i said reality kind of especially if you're writing near future science fiction like reality is outpacing you on the daily as an author like it's just constantly leaping beyond your capacity for what you expect is real or or not real um and if you're writing satire and parody i imagine that's very hard i assume there's some value in writing escapism um because there are going to be people who need to find a doorway out of this kind of stuff um, and even escapism can still do some mileage in terms of, I mean, well, uh, Star Wars is a simplistic um, storytelling, um, you know, experience. It, it still gets at some things. In fact, both the prequels and the current trilogy have kind of predicted some interesting things. I mean, the sequel or the prequels predicted a little bit of the whole, hey, what if someone uses a cataclysm and a bad event to engineer a war against the wrong things and consolidate power. And then hmm. the new the new sequels are like, hey, wouldn't it be weird if there were a bunch of fanboys of the Empire and they were, you know, a terrible, watered-down, angry, petulant young man version of that sort of fascist empire and they suddenly gained all the power in, over the world? And you're like, oh, that actually happened. Oh, crap. That's real. You made truth happen, Star Wars. Damn you. So, um, you know, even in escapism, you can find ways to cleave to an interesting truth and grapple with things. But it's hard. It's very hard to know um, both what uh, reality is going to do from day to day and also what people are going to want to read. Like Wanderers is getting, to my um, great pleasure and surprise, a lot of very good advanced press and a lot of great um, blurbs from authors who I'm honestly very honored to uh, have listed on the book. Um, and the, the reviews have been great, but like, I don't know if people are going to want to read it. It's a dark, strange time now. And it's a dark, strange book, although I don't aim for it to be a hopeless, grim, dark parade. I, I think my goal is it doesn't read hope. like, yeah. It, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's very difficult to discuss it. Um, yeah, yeah it is, and really, also convey, very difficult but to it's not book. just like, 
it's not just like uh, and then the and then the toast burnt and the dog died and right yeah it's not, it's a, not a, a like parade this, of it, pain yeah yeah it's 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 not but i suppose when you talk about the events in isolation it's difficult to explain how it sounds why yeah it's not. it sounds dark it sounds terrible but it, no it, it's i really do try to contextualize hope and find light and humor as you note in the book like the book i try to make it funny and an adventure at the same time like a mystery and an adventure and all the, the great things that i deal so the goal is to make something that is both timely and is an artifact of the now but also something that is timeless something like you know the stand that does for lack of you know not not no the terrible term but it still stands on its own um even today uh while still being a product of its time and its peculiar moment in history so um yeah it's it's hard it's just hard it's hard knowing what to do and how to make it work and how to have it compete with reality and that's the other thing right is like everyone is thankfully in some ways glued to the news media right now i think it's why blogs are maybe having a hard time because people are reading again but they're just reading articles which is good i'm for that yay all of that but you don't know how much time they have for things like 800 page novels can can i i should say the the buzz i've seen around this book already is unreal i don't want to i want to like slightly temper my insane yes, like resentment I'm, I'm, but it's looking like people are loving it the blurbs yeah, are amazing know, and, yeah, yeah it looks so. and, and well deserved as well actually i have Thank to you. say on well just on reading it then i'm like uh yeah all right i can see that okay so like okay fair <laughs> yeah. enough um all right, I'll take that, that. that help that helps um i was just I, I, I'm sorry to sort of like throw like gigantic sort of like theoretical or existential questions at you, but I just I wondered sort of slightly sort of jumping off your last point. What do you think the value of horror is? Because it's something I read a lot, and yeah, it's. But I'm also somebody with like an anxiety with like multiple anxiety disorders who has yeah, this incredibly yep. overactive amygdalae. So why do why do we read fantasy? Why why do we read sorry uh, horror? Why what's the value of reading something that scares the shit out of you? It's such a good question. I have no firm answer for it, but I think it's similar to what I talked about in terms of me wrestling anxieties into a book um, and then dealing with them. There, it's like you're taking real fears and sort of simulating them in a safer environment um a film is a safe environment a tv show is a safe environment a book is a safe environment even if it ends poorly it's not real um though of course the best writers can make you feel such indelible pain that it becomes too real and anxiety making of its own but generally speaking it's like you've contained it it's like you've it's like ghosts in the trap and ghostbusters you've Hmm. contained them and that's where you can deal with them um, and it's why I tend to respond better to horror that isn't so grim and so ceaseless. Um, in films, it works a little differently. Like, I can watch a hereditary and just be like, well, that was terrifying and terrible. Like, not terrible in a quality way, but terrible, like, in an experiential what happens to all the characters way. Um, but it's two hours and I can stop. But if I'm going to read a 500-page novel or even 300-page novel, I don't do well if that novel doesn't have some humor or hope or uh, a, 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 not a happy ending, but a Pyrrhic victory ending. It's why, you know, something like It is such a good story in terms of it. it I mean, for me personally, in that it, um, both film and book, uh, it's, you know, grappling with this horror monster and how people are bad and the adults are all bad. But 
in the end, they still kind of win. Like, it's not a perfect win. It's not like a beat the dragon and take the gold kind of win. But there's a there's some context and conquering of evil. Uh, even if you expect it will return in another cycle, you've done something. You've changed that and you've kept yourself safe. So um, there's some value there for horror in terms of how we it lets us fight demons without actually having to fight the demons. And so maybe it provides us with kind of narrative emotional calluses. So when we actually face real anxiety stuff, we're maybe a little bit readier for it. Yeah, when you describe it like that, it kind of gives it a kind of like mythic quality in the same way that we have folklore and things that don't involve kind of the monsters in the forest all being wiped out and now the forest is safe, but (laughs) the person gets away maybe or they win that time. It's both a warning and a a grappling with the thing, yeah. Uh, You've done an awful lot for the writing community and for oh, writers probably led them all astray is what i've probably done but <laughs> uh, well it, it, but but certainly even if you know as as a shepherd yourself you were sort of like leading your flock uh, of of a cliff to their dooms like they've yeah, certainly yeah, gone willingly yeah. and they seem yeah. very grateful and yes. out of the fools, the fools. <laughs> i just wondered if you could talk about um well i i know why i sort of do it and why i'm engaged but i just wondered if you could talk a bit about why you just sort of decided to sort of invest so much time in helping other writers and giving people boosts because out of every every you know i've talked to i've done hundred you know nearly 200 episodes of this show talk to so many writers talk to so many readers and you your name is the one i hear most from people when they're like who is the sort of I'll, I'll stop short of saying guru but like oh God, best person to go to for kind of creative writing advice <laughs> and i wondered if you could talk a bit about how you got into to that racket yeah i um i have for those who don't know i have a blog terribleminds.com and uh originally when i um set out to do a website i was going to do something that was a writing community so, because I came out of like bulletin board systems, I was a SISOP for my own bulletin board system, and uh, which is, of course, a tiny version of the internet before there was an internet. And uh, so, uh, on those things, I ran like a writers group called uh, Writers Against Reality War, and it was just a bunch of like local writers who would dial up to this BBS and talk about writing. And so, I wanted to do that in an internet way and put that on a website. But then, of course, it turns out that that's very expensive to design that kind of website. So, I had a uh, a, a roommate uh, and she was an html designer and so she said well i can give you like a static website and uh, at the time i said let's just do that i will go on there and i will talk about writing and the only reason i really wanted to talk about writing on that website was because i wasn't yet i mean i was a freelancer at that point but i wasn't a published novelist and i i had frustrations with my own work in the industry and things i didn't understand about how to make things click in a story way and so it was mostly and i didn't think anyone was listening so it was mostly a way for me to yell at me about writing it was never a thing meant to be for other people exactly, even though I was broadcasting it. And so eventually a friend of mine, Will Hindmarch, who um, is also a game writer and a brilliant game designer, um, said, well, why don't you install WordPress and actually have like a real, you know, take off the diaper and put on the big boy pants with your website. And I was like, oh, okay. So I did that. And, uh, you know, it was almost like flipping the lights on in a room and realizing you were never alone, which is both creepy and wonderful at the same time. Yeah. Uh-huh. You realize like, oh, people have been watching me perform 
for for I don't know how long because I had an audience checking out the. I mean, I had no metrics, I had no comments until WordPress, and then suddenly I saw that this was a thing. People were there, and uh, that was fascinating. And so I just sort of kept doing what I do, which is really talking about things that were more challenges for me more than they were challenges for other people. So it was my way of almost like in fiction, how I was contextualizing a fight with anxieties and other fears. Um, writing advice is a, a way for me to grapple with questions about how to tell stories and how to form a sentence and how to how to deal with things like agents and editors and all that and you know sort of sticky, squicky stuff. So um, it was always about it's not so egotistical, but it was always about me. Uh, and then eventually, as I sort of get past some of those challenges and other people have questions and stuff, I feel like I have answered them for myself and so I can talk about it. But I, I have increasingly also become aware that everything that I think that I know about writing is stuff that I don't know about writing. Um, and it's why I'm very, very keen to remind everyone that writing advice is bullshit. Um, and it's just that, like bullshit, it can fertilize. There is some value to some people when it's a specific piece of writing advice. Otherwise, there's very little writing advice or storytelling advice that's universal. Um, the best we can do is just sort of put it out there and talk about it and see if there's um, you know, some way that you as a writer can regard it and can either challenge it and form your own answer to the problem or can absorb it into your own and be like, this is a good tool for me to use going forward that will help me it's it, the goal is just to find things that help you write and help you tell better stories um if something works use it if something doesn't discard it and that's a great way forward can you because you so so not to sort of be too obsequious but like externally you give every impression of being like a really you know a really successful writer who's doing really really well <laughs> the fools right so uh, so what what are the what are the biggest challenges as a writer that you still face if any how to sign so many books i'm not i'm only being partly <laughs> that is hard I'm, yeah it's very hard signing so many books it just hurts the hand you gotta you gotta like you know flex it and exercise no i uh it, on some ways obviously i know more of what i'm doing um but i also have come to comfortable terms with the fact that I don't know what I'm doing. Um, in that every book is really hard. They're not, they don't get, for me, they haven't gotten easier. It's not like I sit down and write a book and I'm like, aha, now I know. I mean, I have a process and that process is variable from book to book, but it's it kind of is flexible from a central point. Um, but every time I sit down to write, the book very firmly reminds me that it is a unique entity and will not go the same way that the former book went. Um, Wanderers was a huge, huge divergence for me from how I do things. And so I am routinely reminded that, um, you know, writing advice is like, a, you know, it, only, it doesn't survive contact with the enemy in a lot hmm. of ways. I mean, it, it does sometimes. And sometimes you can sort of have through lines and, and you learn new things as you go and you can kind of go back to ground with some old ideas. But uh, every book is different and every publishing experience is different and everything you get out of every book is different and every edit for every book is different. And so um, it's just useful for me to sort of remember that that is the challenges um, for a writer operating in the, the middle of their career, the beginning of their career, the end of their career, um, while they are usually of a different magnitude, um, I do think there's still a lot of common 
sort of, you know, plaintive cries of like, I don't know what I'm doing. This I'm like, you just lost in a dark forest. We're all lost in a dark forest and just different writers find different ways through. So can I, can I ask then, and I mean, I, I know you sort of preface this by saying all writing advice is bullshit. Right, well, yeah. But I, but like, but something has kept you going and has kept you continuing to write, right? Even yeah. though it's not easy, you've continued yeah. to write, even though, um, you know, some of your work's been really successful, but I presume there's been moments where you've thought that I can't, I can't write this. I'm going to give up and, and go and hide somewhere. And oh, yeah. I think also just, you know, as somebody myself, who's just out, had his like second novel out and just like watched it um, power slide through a plate glass window into a, <laughs> like a pile of manure and yeah. just being like, Oh, yeah. Oh shit. I guess, I guess that. that's that happened. Book. Yeah, I still have those books. Absolutely. <laughs> can you, can you? I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about maybe what what you've personally found has helped you keep keep going when kind of like your umbrella's blown inside out, the rain's pouring down, and you got a hole in your boot. Oh boy, that's a yeah. Um, in terms of writing or in terms of publishing, because they're two different. <laughs> Two different experiences. That's, that, that's really interesting. Um, I don't mind either or, either or both. I think for a lot of, actually a lot of the time, I'm quite lazy when I'm talking about them and I treat them as if they're the same thing, as if career is the same thing as craft. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, the craft thing, the way I power through is the way I power through uh, issues of anxiety in that I recognize that any fear or tumult I'm having will pass and that it's probably an abnormal fear and that I have enough evidence of having written books uh, myself and in the rest of the world can do this. Like there's the rest of the writing world. They write books too. Um, it's, you know, it's not one of the Herculean challenges. So uh, I can do it. Like I just, I know on the day to day, it's almost like I'm talking about Shana in Wanderers. Like there's a level of like I can I only choose to see the trees and not the forest while I'm writing. I try not to worry about the big picture. Like, was the book going to be at the end? When am I going to finish it? Is it going to be a success? Is it going to be just like on a day to day level? It's mostly just like head down and power through and get. Cool. So it, you're it, like, what's what's my what's the next task I need to do? Yeah, what's, what's my immediate task? problem? Exactly. And I mean, you know, if I've done some work on the outline in beforehand and it's useful for me to do that, that I have, I have that, you know, I have, it's my flashlight in that dark forest that helps me see my way through. It's, it's broken and it flickers, but it'll get me there. So, um, as far as publishing goes, (laughs) I don't know. Um, publishing is hard. There's just no, um, you know, we're, we're separate from a lot of the information. Um, you don't really know there's a whole audience out there who wants what they want and it may not be what you've written. I've had books, um, that I didn't expect to do well, do very well. I've had books that, you know, were legacy, um, that I thought would do very well, not do as well as I wanted. Um, it's hard writing a series because sometimes by the time you're writing the second or third book, you've seen how the second book before it has failed, right, or not done well. And so half as many people have bought it, so half as many orders from bookstores, and you're just like, why am I writing a series? <laughs> how many <laughs> of these do I have to write? It's like it, it stops being Herculean at that point, and it's purely Sisyphean. So uh, you just don't you just don't know. Um, but publishing, again, is just sort of like a kind of a keep your head down and do it. Um, publishing, you just keep taking cracks at it. Um, I think there's a lot of untoward fear that somehow that people are going to be blacklisted or their careers are going to be dead in publishing. And ultimately, at the end of the day, publishing lives from book to book. 
Um, I mean, you, you can get a little juice and a little legacy going like I'm a named author. Maybe I'll, I can coast on that for a while, but most of the time you can't coast. You can't really coast on a great book and you can't really coast uh, or, and, and you won't sink on a bad book. Um, if the next book you write is valuable and good and to someone, um, you might have a shot at it. It's not really going to necessarily be shut down. So, um, you know, like the craft stuff is easier for me to get through than publishing stuff. You're just like, well, it's I, I don't know, like how it's like getting through a storm outside. You're like, this is going to be what it's going to be. And it's either going to be really cool and I'm going to sit out in the porch listening to the rain and the thunder or a tornado is going to come and blow my house down and I'm just going to have to rebuild it. So it, it's uh, that's uh, that's actually sort of straight a bit like horror fiction itself. That is actually strangely sort of like uplifting. And it's just like some of this is, is not in your control. And also, like that, the there aren't these huge kind of indomitable bastions that mean you know you know books can just just come out of nowhere and do well, yeah. and that yep. kind of means that anyone could be sort of lifted up by that sudden sort of rising tide. Right. When Wanderers, for all the kudos it has been blessedly getting, I am also well aware. That it could, you know, land like a just a just a box full of rocks. <laughs> I, I know that that's a reality. That is a reality. It might just be, you know, it's good, or it might be okay. Like it'll do fine, and everyone will be like, "Oh, good job, good reviews." You know, there's books that have won awards and have never sold a thing. There's books that have sold a million copies and have never won an award. You just don't know. And um, at the end of the day, it, I think in some ways the answer to the publishing worry is to worry more about craft. Like just. You can't control publishing. You just can't. You can't control what an audience wants. You can't control what editors want. Um, the best you can control is your your craft. And so if you always kind of go to ground on writing the next book and the next book after that and improving yourself and rethinking about your craft in new ways, I think – and that's one of the values of writing advice too is not necessarily to take those things as gospel truths but to take those things as – uh, ways to challenge yourself and ways to be like, hey, is that a thing that's good for my book or bad for my book or just does it help me think about writing in a new way? Um, that's where you get a sense of um, optimism and hope again because you're like, well, I can I can control what's in front of me even if it's a sloppy, clumsy, drunken mess. I can I can write a book somehow. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, publishing will do what publishing is going to do, but I can write the book. Yeah, I sometimes just feel a bit like a kind of like crazy old dude, like living in a lighthouse, rearing like doves or pigeons or something, kind of like slowly training them over years. And then I release them and like a sparrow hawk just comes out of nowhere and just like nails it and eats it. And I'm like, oh, well, got to go to the next one then. Like it's right. kind of it's a weird it's 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 it is hard for people to sort of ha to let go of the result, the product, and focus on yeah. process. But I think you're absolutely, absolutely right. It's because you, like, of course, you spend ages and you release your book out into the world and go, fly, and then it just, like, right. sinks like a stone. But then sometimes the kind of most tacked-together, sort of clumsy child that you never thought would be anywhere, you know, is the sibling that goes and dominates the world, I guess. Yeah. You just don't know. Well... I just um oh if people want to find you online where sure. I mean where where's the best place for them to do that uh I'm just I'm between the ones and zeros you just gotta summon me I'm like I'm <laughs> like uh, bloody Mary say my name three times in a mirror no I, I am at uh, my blog is terribleminds.com and you can also generally find me on Twitter which is at Chuck Wendig um thanks very so much for um thank you giving up your time to chat Chuck it's been really genuinely enlightening 
enlightening and fascinating. And I will put a link, um, everyone, to, in the show notes to not just Chuck's uh, website, but, of course, um, to uh, Wanderers. So if you want to get hold of a copy, you can get hold of one there or just head to your local bricks and mortar bookshop. And, yeah, oh, there's um, a, you're in the UK. You're in the UK, so there's signed copies now through Waterstones. Oh, exciting. Okay, everyone, so I will put... Uh, uh, you can go and do that. Um, and uh, everybody listening, thank you very much, and I hope you have a fantastic writing week. <laughs>